using the New American Standard 95 update text uh, with some changes. And we got uh, permission, surprisingly, from the Lachman Foundation to put the entire text of the New American Standard up on the wall. So, pretty exciting. Thanks, Mom. Oh, how is it? Uh, it was laser printed onto brushed aluminum panels. So a local printer did it, and uh, we, we took him the first sheet, which is Genesis 1 to 42, and said, hey, can you print this on a metal panel? What is that? Can't wait to tell you. <laughs> and, and there's 26 more of these. And, uh, and they did it. So, and then Kenny and his, Kenny um, sitting in his crew built the frames and then glued the frames on and then a, a crew of guys mounted them to the wall and so kind of a fun process. They're, they're not terribly heavy. Uh, I, I can lift one of those framed panels by itself. That's a good question. I don't know. That, that might be worth uh, investigating. Next time we do a Q&A, Diana, I'll ask you that question. You can do some research for us. Yeah, that's right. Okay, Mom, what else do you want to know? What, is the, what, what are the parameters here of, of like what we can ask? Well, you can ask anything. Okay. Uh, I am just not answering. <laughs> okay, well, I've got one. No, you just used your question. Oh, Next. Yeah. <laughs> so how, how would we as a church define, um, define a, a, the gospel message? What would we say is the gospel? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, if... Let's do it this way. When we say the word gospel, what comes to mind? Yeah. So the, the basic meaning of the word is good news. Um, and, and if you were to ask Americans or Bible Belt Americans, what do you mean by gospel? You get an array of answers from a style of music, right, gospel music, um, to the Gospels, right? if you're speaking to Catholic background people, when, they, when you say Gospel, they're not thinking substitutionary atonement, they're thinking Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right? They're, they're thinking the Gospel accounts. Uh, I've asked a number of people, what is the Gospel? And people just say, oh, the Bible. Um, Amri, you guys ask this question pretty regularly on Mill Avenue. Uh, what are some of the answers that you've gotten? Yeah, yeah. Um, so style of music is, is wrong. The Bible, I, I could make a case for that. Um, the gospel accounts, I mean, each of the gospel, some of the gospel accounts start with the gospel according to. Um, uh, getting to heaven by being a good person, right, totally wrong answer. Um, at, its, at its basis, gospel simply means good news. And, and it's, sometimes it's confusing when you read the gospel narratives, right? The, the, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, first four books of the New Testament. And you see that the good news is heralded as Messiah has come or the king has arrived. He's here. Uh, preach the good news of the kingdom, you see as a refrain over and over again. And as you heard from John's introduction to the gospel of Mark last week, that is the basic thrust of the word gospel in Mark. The king has come. It's good news. Now that good news of the king having come includes the idea of the suffering servant and substitutionary atonement. But that's not the totality, the sum total of the good news that Messiah brings. When we're having conversations and we're asking people what is the gospel, what, what, I think what we're trying to get at in an evangelistic context is how does someone get to heaven? What is the good news of substitutionary atonement? But you want to be careful that you don't import the maybe uh, Acts to Revelation singular definition of gospel back into the, the four gospel accounts of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. If you do that, we call that a, uh, the, the word fallacy of totality transfer. That is, I'm taking the import of a contextual use of a word like gospel from these books over here, and I'm putting all of that weight back into this text over here. And if you do that, you tend to get into trouble. 
Right? Here's a kind of a basic hermeneutical principle. We'll use the word justification, for instance. You see that word in Romans chapter 4, and you say, I know what justification means in Romans chapter 4. Right? That means uh, how a sinner is declared right before a holy God. God treats me just as if I'd justified, just as if I'd never sinned, and just as if I'd always done everything right on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, if you take that definition of justification, how is a sinner declared right in the holy courtroom of holy God and therefore qualified to be in heaven? If I take that definition of justified and I insert that into James chapter 2, turn to James 2 for a second. Or run out into the hallway and look at James 2 on the wall. And you see James 2.24. And after we've read Romans 4 and Paul says no one is justified by works of the law. Then we read James 2 verse 24. And James says you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And you see we have a problem if we don't allow James to use the word justified in the ways James intends. And we import the totality of the contextual weight of the word justified from Romans 4 or from Galatians into James chapter 2, we get into trouble. We need to understand what is the basic use of the word justified, which just means to put something forth as right or just. To put something forward as being right. Now, in the, in the realm of, of salvation... When God puts forth a sinner as right on the basis of faith alone, that is about salvation, Romans 4. That is how someone gets to heaven. It is the only way a sinner gets forgiven and God maintains his own reputation. That God takes our sin and puts it on Christ. You can't work for your salvation. You can't undo your crimes against heaven by trying to do good things only the finished work of Jesus Christ on the basis of faith justifies a sinner before a holy God. But in James chapter 2, the fundamental definition is still to put something forward as just or right. The question in James 2 is what is being put forward as just or right? Is it a sinner before a holy God? Or in James 2, is it a man's faith in the audience of other men? And that's the issue in James 2. Look up at verse 18. Someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And then he offers Abraham as the example. His faith was working with his works as a result of his works. His faith was perfected. Do you see what's at stake here? Over and over again in James 2, James says, see this, look at this, do you notice this? These are the eyes of men on the profession of faith of a man. These are not the holy eyes of God on the status of a sinner. So, Justification just means put something forth as just or right. In James 2, it is a declaration of faith before the audience of men. You say you have faith? Great. Demons believe. You say you believe? Let's see it. Because faith that saves, you've heard it said, is not without works. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. A genuine faith, which is the product of regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, also produces a transformed life. And a man's faith is justified before the audience of the world if it's real, if it's producing spiritual fruit. So similarly, go to Mark chapter 1, and we think about the word gospel. And we might think 1 Corinthians 15, what is the gospel? Uh, substitutionary atonement. Uh, Jesus died in my place so that I could be forgiven. That's the good news. But you need to know it's not the only good news, and it's not the only use of gospel. 
Mark 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as you heard from John last week, what does this introduction introduce? Jesus, this one who is God, this one who is a man, this one who is the king, who is the promised Messiah, has come. And then you see in Jesus' preaching and in the preaching of the disciples during his earthly ministry, the preaching of the good news of the kingdom. And think about this. If the good news was you got your sins forgiven, and that was it, you haven't yet gotten to the good news of the good news. Right? The, 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 the forgiveness of sin, the end of that, is not so that a bunch of forgiven people can walk around in heaven with a blank slate and say, look at mine, look at yours, we all have blank slates. Woo. No, forgiveness of sin qualifies you to be in the presence of a terrifying, awesome, beautiful, holy, good God, a consuming fire, and not be incinerated, but rather enjoy his presence. Forgiveness of sin and the, the good news of substitutionary atonement is the qualifying good news for the good news of the presence of God and the fullness of his reign for all of eternity. Uh, it is the preparation for kingdom citizens when Jesus reigns on the earth and the qualification for being in God's presence in the, whole, in the uh, eternal state. Did we, did we scratch the itch, Josh? Follow up? Okay. See, the trick to Q&A is take a question you're comfortable walking with and try to use the whole hour on that question. So there's no, but I didn't do it. I've got 40 minutes of terrifying Q&A left. So who's next? Ron Turnbull, uh, my uh, stepfather, right? Is that right? Is that the right title? I don't know if I've ever called you that. Stepdad. Yeah, I'll repeat the, the question. The question is, given the state of current events and things going on now, can you give a summary of liberation theology? Um, liberation theology uh, was a, essentially a Marxist adaptation of the gospel uh, birthed in South America. Um, under the guise of using Christian language, New Testament language, kingdom language, Jesus vocabulary, to basically wage a class war in Latin America, to foist uh, Latin American revolution, and, and to pit one class against another, and basically provide a new Moses, a new Jesus in the communist leaders that said, look, we're going to use the Bible uh, the Bible clearly shows that rich are evil and poor are godly. So if you're poor, you're godly. Follow me. Give me your money. Give me your time. Make me your tyrant. And I will lead you into the new promised land of class warfare and the destruction of the bourgeoisie in Central America. That was liberation theology in a nutshell. Basically absconding Christian vocabulary and terms to foist a communist revolution. Liberation theology has had adherence uh, that have espoused the similar things, similar doctrines, similar practices, uh, but in other forms and in other places. And there are a lot of different iterations of this. Uh, black liberation theology is essentially the same doctrine, but applied to African Americans in this country as the oppressed, everybody else as the oppressors, and those who would lead the black liberation theology movement would be the new Moses or the new Jesus, leading them into the promised land, of uh, reversing the oppression. So, Amr, you want to give me, you've read a lot on black liberation theology. Um, you want to give any uh, fill in on that? Because that's probably the more um, relevant iteration of it in our day. Uh, Why don't you, on, let's do it on the mic and the recording. <laughs> that's the other trick to a QA. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so yeah, Black Liberation Theology. Uh, if you've heard the name James Cone, uh, he was sort of the father of Black Liberation Theology, which, as Smedge has mentioned, uh, saw the, uh, or picked an oppressed class, in this case, black people in America, and uh, sought to use Christianity to say, here's biblically why you should be liberated. 
um, took passages about spiritual poverty, uh, spiritual bondage and imprisonment, and made those about uh, socioeconomic poverty and those kinds of things. Uh, the way the woke movement has used that in our day is to say, see, the Bible legitimizes the church being about social liberation. Uh, Jesus was about those things they would say um, and you know people are, have been willing to overlook the heretical errors of James Cone and men who follow that system in order to make a case for why the church needs to be lifting uh, black people out of oppression and so you get the uh, now under the guise of we are doing justice, right? You have more than just blacks in uh, teaching these things, but now white preachers uh, and teachers getting on the same bandwagon, make, making churches, uh, making their own churches, teaching generally that the church must be about uh, identifying injustices uh, of minorities in our day and then systematically going after change through legislative means, political means, uh, economic factors, uh, giving up your privilege so that minorities can enjoy it instead. Uh, that's now become part and parcel with the church's mission and uh, depending, you know, which iteration you hear, uh, they've made it part of the gospel. And so, you know, it's been a subtle way to weasel in our own works. This is part of the gospel, too, uh, lifting people out of oppression and things, which is, you read James Cone's uh, God of the Oppressed, Black Liberation, uh, or Black Theology, and oh, I'm forgetting the name now. Something having to do with black black power in a title is escaping me at the moment. But um, it's the same exact thing that he taught, uh, and it's fascinating to watch uh, people at what historically have been credible seminaries um, and credible leaders actually teaching these things. It's kind of sad. It's not. There's no escaping it, but that's what that is. Is there a redemptive message in this for their followers in some fashion? Uh, that's a great question. Um, no. There, there is no promised land in, in this. Uh, the, the jargon you'll hear is that you're, we're always learning. We'll, we'll never be finished learning uh, in, in our journey of this anti-racism. And really, that's just a caveat on the front end to say, you'll always have to come to me for your answers. I'll never be out of a job. I'll never be uh, you know, at a loss for the need for your money to support my organization. Yeah, there's no, there, there is no redemption. Um, you would hear a, a twofold, like two components to the gospel message. Uh, one having to do with justification by faith alone. And the other part of that would be uh, changing oppression. So both of those things are equally a part of the gospel message that we preach, that men must come to faith in Jesus, uh, through substitutionary atonement and if you actually believe that what we are also requiring is changing the the social status of oppressed people they wouldn't they uh, maybe but depending on how and who articulates it, it gets pitched as the fruit of saving faith as well as uh, what's necessary.
for saving faith as well. And I've heard the same individuals sort of articulate both versions of that. And I think it's, you can't obligate the church to do things unless uh, you tie it that closely to the gospel. It's not as if the Bible clearly understood drives the movement. And so to, to even make, try to make a distinction between sanctification and justification is not the goal. Right? The, 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 the only way the movement works is if you take biblical language, sort of generally accepted, skip the details, and foist it on people to move your agenda forward. And nobody wins. This is not gospel of any kind. If you think about those under the system, there's no forgiveness. I mean, the, the oppressor um, can't be forgiven and can't change by definition. And the oppressed can't sin. They're already godly by definition. So the oppressed never need to repent. The oppressors can't repent. Nobody wins. And the best that the builders of this pseudo-kingdom ever get is an earthly, temporal kingdom and a front row seat at the great white throne judgment. I mean, it is an absolute tragedy. And I think about Jesus' woes to the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He says, you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, and you do not enter it yourselves, nor are you allowing people to enter into it. That's a very similar phenomenon. Um, it, it is no gospel. It is no liberation. It is an enslavement to a tyrant who wants power. And, and you appeal to people's feelings of covetousness, greed, envy, and, and make everybody a victim and feel like a victim. And in fact, you have victimized them and enslaved them to yourself for power and money. Uh, it's just the worst of wickedness. And the tragedy of the church is the, the church buys into it because the church doesn't know the scriptures. And the church hasn't been taught to, to work into the details of understanding differences like justification and sanctification. Understanding how passages apply. So they're just comfortable with this Christian speak, right? And we just get lulled into this. Uh, you listen to, to Top 40 Christian Radio, and it's just all these phrases that sound Christianese, but people don't have the discernment to know what passage did that come from, and did they get it right? And so when someone comes along and quotes a Bible verse, and everybody goes, yeah, I, I think I like the Bible. I, I have one. And the church falls hook, line, and sinker for it. And, and right now, I think the church is being embarrassed by state legislatures and governors and, and uh, you know, some segments of, of teachers who are saying critical race theory is garbage. It's actually racist. And, and, and here you have unbelievers and, and secular organizations and education departments and, and state legislatures getting rid of what was a fad and everybody was on board for a few minutes. And the church just went, yeah. Why? Because the church, well before critical race theory was a phrase, went, hmm, what do people want to hear? And, and we'll package Christianity in that. And if the trend of the day, the flavor of the day is woke, then we're going to be woke. If the flavor of the day is critical race theory and anti-racism, we're going to be that too. And, and, and now the, the, the church is being embarrassed because the world is figuring out that anti-racism is actually racism. Uh, and it's, that's just tragic when the, when the church follows the trends of the world, whatever is popular at the moment, um, you just get embarrassed because the fads come and go. There'll be something else next week and the church will follow that too. There is absolutely a difference. Um, there is a, uh, Josh's question was, is there a difference between those who are intentionally deceiving and those who are gullible, those who are being deceived? I've paraphrased. Is that fair? That's fair. Um, and there's a spectrum in that, right? There's, there are sincere people who need to be taught, who need to be equipped, who need to read their Bibles, who need uh, some help in thinking through these things, who need Omri to read James Cone for you so you don't have to, uh, those kinds of things. Um, and we need that. Um, we, we need the Vody Bacchums in the world who are, uh, you know, has anybody read Fault Lines? Anybody own it? Do you own a physical copy? Yes. Oh, you're one of the lucky few. 
Uh, Ron's got a digital copy, just started it. I, I want to read it, but we need some people to help us think through critically some of the things and the trends so we understand them biblically. That's helpful. Um, and and there's, a, there's a spectrum of people who are sincere. Look, who wants to be, if you're a Christian, um, you don't want to be a racist. You don't want to be called a racist. Um, that Racism is actually sin. There are better, better biblical words to describe it. Um, uh, to, to show preference on the basis of appearance and things like that. It's just sin. Um, and, and Christians should never be guilty of those things. But I think the world has found something to, it, you know, call somebody a name and they're shamed out of society. Um, you know, and, and, and sometimes, you know, you, they, you know, try homophobic, try racist, try whatever the, the name of the day is, don't be that bad guy. Um, and Christians, we want to love people. We want people to know the truth. And look, the, the issues of eternal life are, are not about the, the, the sin flavor of the day going on in the world, uh, whether it's trans- transgenderism or racism or anything else. The, the issues are, how is a sinner made right before a holy God? I don't, I don't want to lose the message on a side message, so I'd rather just avoid it. The problem is anything that intersects with the truth of God's word and muffles his voice becomes the fighting ground. It becomes the battleground. And if you capitulate where the battle lines have been drawn, you've capitulated on the whole thing. So there's a spectrum of people who should know better, people who are sincere, who just need to be taught, and then you've got the hucksters. You've got the people who know what the truth is, or accountable to the truth, they've made themselves teachers, they want followers, and their issue is not a, a theological problem, it's a character issue, right? And they're leading people to destruction. So there's a spectrum. Mr. Greer, sir. <laughs> Great question, Greer. Greer asked, why are there extra books in the Catholic Bible? Okay, great question. Have you read any of them? Okay. Yeah, they, they are not uh, canonical. That means they don't meet the standard of what is God's word. Uh, how do we know what meets the standard of what is God's word? God spoke it. That's the bottom line. God spoke it. Um, those books in the Catholic Bible are, uh, they're, books that were written between the Testaments, between during the 400 silent years between the Old Testament and New Testament. Books like Second Maccabees, Bell and the Dragon, things like that. And and they're, they're kind of like um, Chronicles of Narnia or something like that. They're, they're sort of extra, sort of Christian-y, and this is pre-Christ, but sort of Bible-y themes. Um, and some of them are really entertaining to read. I, I haven't read the entirety of the Apocrypha. That's what it's called, but I've read some of it. Um, and it's entertaining. Some of them are like historical fiction. Uh, some of them are uh, attempts to be encouragements to, to people who love God and those kinds of things. But it's interesting. In Second Maccabees, there is actually a quote in Second Maccabees that says, God is silent right now and he's not speaking. No scripture is being written. So the books themselves tell you, we're not Bible. We're not Bible. So how did they get in our Bibles? Jerome, in the 4th century, translated the Bible into the Latin Vulgate. Vulgate comes from the word vulgar, which means common. And uh, everybody was starting to speak Latin. Fewer people were were speaking Greek in the Christian world at that time. And Jerome wanted a Bible for the people. And so he took to, to putting the Bible in the language that people spoke. The tragedy is a thousand years after Jerome wrote a Bible for the people, people were still using that Bible when nobody could speak that language. Uh, Jerome would have rolled over in his grave. Uh, and Jerome did some really interesting things. He wrote what's called the Hexapla, which was a six-column version of the Bible with different translations, all comparing notes. He did a lot of work on textual criticism to get the text right. He was... A phenomenal hero and then he sort of stapled the apocrypha in the back he took those books from the silent years and put them on the back of the Bible and Jerome said these are not Bible but they're helpful for the church it would be like taking uh, you know John Piper's don't waste your life or the Chronicles of Narnia 
or Pilgrim's Progress and packaging it on the, on the back of here and putting it all in one binding and say, hey, Christians, go read these. But this part's different than these other parts. That's what Jerome said about it. Now, what's interesting is a thousand years after that, the Roman Catholic Church had some doctrines that are not in the Bible, but could sort of almost be weaseled from verses in the Apocrypha if you misunderstand them. Uh, doctrines like purgatory come from a pretty shady interpretation of an apocryphal verse. But look, I need to defend purgatory and tell people that if, if, uh, you, know, if you don't do right, you're going to be in flames for a while until somebody prays you out, pays you out, or you get punished enough to get out and finally go to heaven. That is an unbiblical doctrine. That is a lie of Satan. But they needed it to use power in the church, and they needed to prove it from a text. So they declared, I can't remember what year it was. Anybody remember what year the Apocrypha was declared canonical? Any Catholic scholars? I can't remember the year. Um, but they said, oh, the Apocrypha, uh, that's scripture. And we really need that verse about purgatory. Now purgatory is true. Long after Jerome attached it to the Bible. Does that answer your question, Greer? Great question. By the way, purgatory is, a, is a, in my view, a particularly pernicious lie. You think about what it means. In Revelation chapter 20, you have uh, Hades emptied so that the, the wicked dead who have been tormented in Hades all up until the time when Jesus sits on the great white, great white throne judgment, which will be after the millennial kingdom, Hades is emptied and all those wicked dead who have been tormented for years, decades, centuries, and millennia will get out of those flames and stand before Christ. Everybody who has been taught under the Catholic system about purgatory will be likely to think, glad that's done. And look, Tetzel told me I would be in here for 146,000 years. It was only 1,500. I got, oh, that wouldn't be right. It, whatever it is. I don't know. Oh, well, no, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. So it could be 1,500. Let's just go with that. Man, purgatory was short. And who shows up at the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20? Only the wicked dead. And every single person in that line will have the books opened and all their deeds read. And they realize this torment's not over. This reprieve, if we could call it that, is merely the terrifying expectation of an eternity of what I just experienced. Although now in a fully res resurrected body, able to experience that torment in new ways. Terrifying. And if Satan gets one last laugh at his deception, it is that heart-sinking moment when people who believed in purgatory thought it was over, and it's only just begun. What a wicked doctrine that is. It's tragic. Yes, Miss Bell. Okay, why is it that Mormons slash Muslims have wards and worship gods? That is a great question, and I liked both versions of it. I'm just going to tell you, Bill, I believe that Mormonism and Islam are nearly identical and come from the nearly same lies with many of the same manifestations. But I'll answer your question first, and then I'll launch on a tangent. Can I do that? Okay. Why do Mormons have wards? I think they followed sort of the, the Catholic version of a parish. Anybody grew up in the parish system in Catholicism? It's like you, you don't, you're not supposed to like pick your favorite preacher in church and who's faithful. You go to the parish in your neighborhood, right? And, and so the Mormon system is all the brick buildings look the same. They have the same designer for all of them. And it's supposed to be uniform and conformity and you... You know, you, you go to the ward that's in your neighborhood. So I think they've just sort of sectioned off humanity and put them in the place you're supposed to be. I think that's why they have wards. Um, why do they worship false gods? Because they're humans and they're not saved, and that's what humans do. Is that a fair answer? Mormonism is just like every other human-made religion. It's, well, I think I've done some things wrong, if we want to call it wrong. Uh, how do I fix that? I know. 
from all of my deep well of wrongness, I'll come up with some right things to do, and God will be obligated to give me eternal life. Well, that's another lie straight out of the pit. It's terrible, but that's all human religion, and Mormonism is just one other iteration of human contrivance, human achievement that undermines the good news that Jesus came to save sinners. Well, I'm really not that bad, and I can work my way out of whatever bad I have done. Now, I believe Mormonism is Islam 2.0. And think about the parallels here. Uh, An angel tells a guy that he's got golden tablets that have to be translated, and the angel's going to give the translation to the guy. And the guy's the only one that knows it, but he doesn't, he can't decipher it after the fact. It's just whatever he said is clearly what it was. Got a vision. Um, And and then he's going to take up swords uh, against uh, all the local governments, and he's going to have to run from city to city to city. Oh, he's going to have a bunch of wives with him, and he's going to kill his enemies. Um, And he's basically going to say, you have to do this, 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 and this to go to heaven. And he's going to say, you should read the Bible because the Old Testament's good and the New Testament's good. And look, I have this other book too. Right? By the way, Islam, sometimes we think Islam is an old, ancient religion. It's not. It's new. It's 700 years after Jesus. In fact, the, 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 the Quran says a good Muslim should be reading the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's long after the Bible. It is a, the more, uh, Islam is a biblical cult. I don't mean biblical in a good sense. I mean it's a cult that sprung from biblical Christianity, added to it. And by adding to it, takes everything away from it. Um, and, and what Islam did was take some of the pagan deities of Muhammad's day and then put some Bible verses to it and kind of contextualize it and, and make it palatable in his day. Um, and then he was run out of town because nobody should believe what you say. Goes to a new town. Nobody should believe what you say. Goes to a new town, takes up swords, and subdues people. <laughs> well, think about Mormonism in America. Upstate New York, right? Golden Tablets, Angel. Uh, if you go by, we've got a, a temple here down uh, off the 202, South 202, and you see the angel Moroni with the trumpet on the top. Um, and, you know, that's the angel that gave Joseph Smith the Golden Tablets. Uh, Joseph Smith, you know who didn't know any ancient languages, somehow miraculously translated these golden tablets into King's English. (laughs) By the way, if you read the Book of Mormon, there are whole sections cut and pasted out of an 1800s version of King James Bible. Um, And it's just, if you've ever read the Book of Mormon, you go, there's some familiar things in there, and whoa, this is not my Lord. This is creepy. And they took pagan deities, pagan symbols, Masonic rites, a whole bunch of things, and kind of put Bible verses on it. Very similar. And then they staged rebellions against local governments, took multiple wives, fled from city to city to city. And the difference between, you know, Islam has taken on a a very militant flavor in our world today that Mormonism was never allowed. Was it uh, Woodrow Wilson? President Woodrow Wilson wouldn't allow Utah statehood unless Mormonism dropped polygamy and ceased to be militant. So they just weren't allowed to do what Islam was allowed to do because local governments clamped down on it. And this was the United States. And no, you can't just run an armed rebellion and start a new religion and make your own country like was done in Muslim countries. So they're the same religion. It's the same lie. It's obviously the same uh, demonic, satanic stuff behind them. But... Did Satan just go, well, this one worked over there about 1,300 years ago. Let's try a new one. Same story. Different land, different people. Sarah. How can a single woman be useful in frontline missions? That's a hypothetical question, right? Because I have this friend, see, who wants to do that. No, but you're not a single woman. That, um, it's, it is a hypothetical question. Boy, I just talked myself into a... A really bad place. Sarah is married. She's not a single woman, and she is asking a question on behalf of someone else. So um, let's let's uh, let's think through Amelia Brink, for instance, as an example. Uh, Amelia from South Africa joined our team with the Cans and the Mitchells uh, in Maui Roro to help take the gospel to the Doe people. And I think Amelia is sort of the the prototype. Um, this is being recorded, uh, so I just want to be careful how I say this, but. I met Amelia in South Africa at a, uh, a pastor's conference uh, years ago. I was 
uh, preaching about missions and I was talking about the work in Papua New Guinea and Amelia was 18, I think, and said, I want to do that. And what I thought internally was, oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Someday, maybe you could, Amelia. And I'm thinking, well, she could marry a church planter. Um, she could, uh, there are a lot of ways that she could be useful. And, and we got to see in Amelia a remarkable maturity, tenacity, work ethic. Uh, Amelia, if you've met her, you know she transcends her age and generation and station in life. Um, and she has been a phenomenal part of the team. Amelia is brilliant with language um, from, uh, I don't know how many languages she speaks, but at least English, Afrikaans, and uh, uh, Pigeon, Melanesian Pigeon, and now Doe, and English, and whatever else, I don't know, several others. I think she has some German and some French too. And so she worked so hard to pick up the languages there in Papua New Guinea and then just went after evangelism and discipleship with the people. And what's amazing about Amelia's role is she's not married, she's not raising kids, and she has what Paul describes as that season of singleness, which is particularly strategic. In other words, she doesn't have obligations the way a mom does, a wife does, a husband does, a father does. She has a freedom of movement, a freedom of schedule, and Amelia is sort of the prototype of how do I do singleness well? Not just frontier, frontline, missions singleness well. And really that's the question. And, and Sarah, your, your question is just fantastic because it reveals uh, two things. Number one, missions is normal life in a very real sense. Uh, sometimes we have an uh, extravagant, dramatic view of what our missionaries are do, uh, do on a daily basis. And there are phenomenal star stories, and there are unusual hardships. Uh, there are difficulties. But the biggest difficulty of missions is waking up in the morning, spending time with the Lord, being a godly person, spouse, uh, parent, whatever your roles are in life, doing those things well, and then putting one foot in front of the other and plotting in faithfulness. I'm taking Eugene Peterson's definition, a long walk in the same direction. That's his definition of obedience. And, and that's missionary life. And it's boring, it's mundane, it's hard, right? Unless you're Jim Elliott and being speared through on the banks of the Kouray River, um, it's not thrilling. It's, it's tedious, and what Amelia does uh, on the front lines on the mission field is the tedium of knowing Jesus and making him known. And it's hard work to learn languages. It's hard work to meet people across cultural lines and be uncomfortable and just bust into that uncomfortability, be selfless, know the truth and make it known. That's what she does. So is there a role for someone like that? Yep. And if, if it means... Uh, investing in somebody for all that it takes to get to the other side of the world uh, when there's little accountability for it and lots of extra hardships and difficulties that you don't even know how to prepare for. You want to send the right people. She's the right people. And that's not for everybody. Even though what she does is normal everyday Christianity, um, investing in someone to that task there is not for everybody. But it is a good model for everyone that's single. How, are, how am I using my singleness? I've got freedoms now. I won't have again if I enter another stage of life. So am I spending and being spent for the sake of the Lord and the building up of this church? Great question, Sarah. Dustin. Can you uh, tie together Hebrews 6, uh, 4 through 6 and the doctrine of eternal truth? Hebrews 6 can. Yeah, let's turn there. Dustin, thank you. Uh, I'm going to do an upcoming equipping hour uh, on uh, perseverance, apostasy, eternal security, um, where those things all kind of weave together more from a biblical systematic point. But let's, let's read this text in Hebrews 6. This is uh, pretty commonly thought of as a problem passage in the Bible, if you believe in eternal security or if you believe in the perseverance of the saints. And uh, we'll just read it, and then we'll talk about why it's not a problem. 
<clears throat> the author of Hebrews writes, for in the, by the way, who wrote Hebrews? Yeah, God wrote Hebrews. He used a human author. Verse 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And I'll keep reading here. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Okay? These verses clearly teach that there are people who taste heavenly things, who experience biblical truth, biblical realities, and end up going to eternal destruction. That's what these verses teach very clearly. These verses do not teach Christians, genuine Christians, lose their salvation. These verses do not teach that. I've thought for a while um, that Hebrews has some difficult passages because of the warning passages. These are warning passages to professing believers who turn out not to be Christians at all, but end up being judged. Uh, I've reframed my thought on the book of Hebrews, having taught through it. The whole book is a warning passage. It's not just Hebrews 3, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10. The whole thing is a warning passage. The whole message of the letter to the Hebrews is, don't fall away from Christ. Don't turn away from Christ. If you turn away from Christ, you have nothing and this portion of it is just a microcosm of the whole letter. And when it says, look, those who have tasted of the heavenly things, by the way, tasted, not eaten, digested, etc. There's a reason the vocabulary, in fact, what, uh, make a couple observations. In 4 through 6, uh, notice verse 3. Uh, in this, we will do, notice the pronoun we in verse 3. Then notice in verse 4, those who have been enlightened. Those who have tasted the good word of God, verse 5, uh, then have fallen away. Impossible to renew them, verse 6. They again crucify them, uh, the Son of God. Um, ground uh, that drinks the rain which often falls on it, for whose sake it is tilled. Verse 8, if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless. These are all impersonal pronouns or third-person pronouns or relative pronouns. Um, talking about a specific audience. Now notice the pronoun change in verse 9. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. The, that pronoun shift in that warning passage is significant. Uh, the author is talking about a category of people who have had very close exposure to the gospel, to heavenly things, to supernatural power, and they have turned away from it. And they've rejected it. And if you think about what it means to have exposure to good teaching, exposure to real-life transformation all around you, to watch supernatural power by the Holy Spirit bring forth the dead into new life, to see people forsake sin, to watch marriages fixed and kids honor their parents and parents love their children under the Lord, these are impossible things, naturally speaking. To be a witness to these transformative things. And then to say, eh, I'll have the world. That is the tragedy in this verse. That is what is being warned against. And if you do that, the, the greater the exposure to truth, your turning away means oh, greater difficulty in a coming back to the truth. Why? Because you have the, the been there, done that. You know, today the, the, the trending... Um, there is, a, there is a Twitter trend, hashtag exvangelical. Right? Have you heard that phrase, exvangelical? This is a group of people who have been there, done that, tasted of the heavenly things, and said, I don't want it. <coughs> That's what's being warned about here. And specific to the Hebrews, or the, the, the recipients of this letter in the first century, these were Jews in Jerusalem who lived under the shadow of the temple pre-A.D. 70. In A.D. 70, Titus Vespasian rolled through, leveled the temple, removed stone from stone. It's a flat piece of concrete now. Not concrete, flat piece of stone now. 
before that, before that date, AD 70, the temple still stood. Think about that. The curtain in the Holy of Holies has been ripped. Jesus has gone to the cross and said it is finished. What does that mean for the temple and its priests and the animal sacrifices and the blood running out of the, the temple complex day after day after day through animal sacrifice? It's over. It's obsolete. Ichabod, the glory has left the temple. Look, God came unto his own. They had rejected him. He came into his own house, and the glory of God was not in the house. It was run by hypocrites. We just read that in Matthew 23. The woes on the temple were in full force. And now the mechanisms of the temple are still going. There are still priests with robes. They're still doing sacrifices. That temple is physical, tangible, touchable. The meat from the sacrifices was tasteable. The blood running out of the bottom of the temple complex was smellable. It would fill the city of Jerusalem with the reality that sacrifices are still taking place. The religious ceremonies are still going on. Think about what it meant for a Jew to follow Jesus. Especially a Jew following Jesus whom they had never seen. That Hebrews makes reference to. They were willing to have their uh, property plundered for the sake of a Messiah that the temple complex knew was a fraud. No Messiah under the curse of God. And they're willing to follow him not ever having seen him. But they believed him. Think about Hebrews 11, that great hall of faith. Right? What is true about every person in the hall of faith? They believed something they didn't say, see, taste, feel, touch. But they believed the promises of God. And they're in the hall of faith precisely because of the situation those first century Jews were in. They believed the promises of God in Messiah. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed him for forgiveness of sin. And yet the temptation. You got desynagogued, perhaps removed from your family. Maybe you lost your job. But remember what was comfortable. That temple and the sacrifices and the food and the culture and the family and all your friends. That's still going on. The pull back to your old life would be very strong. And the message of Hebrews is, but if you leave Jesus Christ the final sacrifice and go back to those empty sacrifices, there is no more sacrifice for sin. So don't let your heart get hard by the deceitfulness of sin, chapter 3. Um, go on stimulating one another to love and good deeds, Hebrews chapter 10, so that no one falls away. Because all that's left if you fall away is the fury of the fire of judgment of God. So the whole letter is geared towards this message. Don't forsake Christ to go back to what was comfortable before you knew him. That's a real temptation for all of us. Uh, different, perhaps, in its details from the first century in the point of this letter. But Hebrews chapter 6 does not say a genuine Christian loses salvation. It says there is a very real te temptation towards apostasy, and apostasy reveals someone who never really was clinging to Christ in true faith. So what does that mean for us genuine Christians? Hold on! God uses warning passages as a means for preservation. That's why they're here. They're not for you to say, oh, that's, that, that's about the apostate that I knew. No, that's for you! Hold on to Christ and don't turn away because God uses these passages to those ends. We'll do this again sometime. Thank you so much for being here.